0: Take your uh, Bibles, if you will, and open them to Psalm 51, and let me read to you once again the entirety of David's great confession of sin after his um, episode with Bathsheba. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through the end of the psalm. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole offerings, in bulls will be offered in, on your altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it, it endures forever. I need to begin this morning with a with just a, a, a word of clarification or explanation because I'm afraid I'm about to confuse you and I don't want to do that. So let me let me try to start with a piece of clarity. As you know, I think most of you do, that I, I am in a little three part series on we're looking at Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after his uh, his moral breach, uh, the earthquake uh, known of adultery. With Bathsheba and, and ultimately having her husband murdered, killed. This is the psalm that he wrote in response to the visit of Nathan, you recall. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and tells him a little story about a man who has a whole lot of sheep. But there was a man who had only one sheep. And a visitor came to town to visit the rich guy. And he took the one sheep from the poor guy. Instead of taking one out of his flock, he took the one poor ewe lamb. Remember that? And so, it, and finally... David says, that man needs to be, needs to be killed. Nathan points at David and says, David, you're the man. You're the one, David. And David, David humbles himself in repentance. And then he writes Psalm 51. I tried to point out two weeks ago, I tried to be clear about this two weeks ago. I missed last week, as you know, I was with my My newest grandchild. But I tried to point out two weeks ago that um, the psalm and my sermon, really the whole sermon series, is aimed at Christians. Christians who, who have blown it. Christians who have done things that they don't want the rest of us to know about. We've all got those things. We've all got those things stowed away in some closet, hanging there as a skeleton that mocks us, but... this is is a psalm written by a Christian. This was a sin performed by a Christian, done by a Christian, by a believer. And this believer comes back to God. And and that's what the, the whole series is about, coming back to God after we've blown it, after we've done something that that has produced this estrangement between us and the God that we love. However, you're going to notice in my sermon this morning, you're going to notice you're going to notice times that that you think, well, is he talking to Christians or is he talking to non-Christians? Is he is he asking Christians to come back to God or is he is he talking to non-Christians who need to come to God for the first time? That confusion will exist because I will be doing both. And the reason that the, that the confusion exists is because, guys, the mindset that exists when a person comes to Jesus Christ for the first time and the mindset that exists when a person comes back to God after they've blown it so badly, that mindset is similar, yea, even identical. Identical. It's the same mindset. And so that mindset, th- that that attitude of heart and soul, that's where I want to spend the bulk of my time this morning. And that's what might produce a bit of confusion. But we're talking about a mindset. But before we even get to that, i, I got to do one other little preliminary. Steve Brown used to call them. Uh, I guess he still does call them, but uh, he calls them side roads. Now that he's retired, I think I'm just going to pick up his word. This called this a side road. This is a side road to the main road. So let me let me let me clear that away real quick before we get to the main road. And the main road has to do with the mindset. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's talk about the side road, guys, guys. There is a mistake that you've got to avoid, um, and it has to do with false expectations. That is. In coming back to God, there is a mistake that you've got to avoid. You've got to, you've got to keep something straight. And the primary mistaken, um, expectation is this. What does the, what does the ultimate outlook, outcome look like? If I indeed repent and come back to God, what, what is that gonna, What is that going to look like? Let me me make that. Let me clarify. Guys, um, in this story that that, that I have alluded to about David, um, there is, it's really never made clear as to why David did not face the death penalty for what he had done. He had committed two crimes, both of which were worthy of the death penalty. One, he had murdered Uriah. The other thing, in Levitical law, committing adultery was a sin punishable by death? Uh, had the enforcement of those laws lapsed into disuse? We're, we're not told. But Nathan, uh, Nathan, the prophet who comes to David, he obviously knew of that when he says to David, Yes, David, but you will not die. He knew that there was a death penalty out there, but he um, he said, You will not die. Now, he, here's the point I'm trying to make. Whereas David is clearly forgiven and restored to God, the natural consequences of his sin will follow him with a frightful intensity, a fearful inevitability for the rest of his life. And that's the distinction that you must keep clear. Yes, David was pardoned, and so are we. But as is true in the story of David, there may be natural consequences of our sin, as well as the spiritual estrangement from God that we feel, that that estrangement is really what we're dealing with, that estrangement can be dealt with. But the consequences of what I've done... That's a different matter. Because, ladies and gentlemen, what our sin sets in motion often shows up at our own doorstep. Does it not? Let me just try to establish that fact. In verse 14, um, what this appears to be, it has to do with a... What David means by blood guiltiness. But what this could be is that David seems to be asking for something that he doesn't get. He seems to be asking here for, hey, God, could you possibly, or would you, would you consider just forgetting the whole thing? Just give me a mulligan. And yet, I think you know this. The uh, the pregnancy doesn't go away. And not only that, from this point forward in the life of David, his family absolutely shreds. Remember the story about Amnon who sexually violates his sister Tamar, and then Absalom kills Amnon, and then Absalom is sent into exile. And when he comes out of exile, he leads a rebellion against his father, David. All of that after he was forgiven. You cannot, mis- you cannot confuse forgiveness with exoneration. The forgiveness indeed is forthcoming. But the consequences is an entirely different matter. You know, just as somewhat of an aside, this is where I think we make mistakes as parents. When our kids do something that is awful, should we forgive them? Why, of course we should forgive them. Should we restore them? Why, of course we should restore them. Should we love them and, and, and apply grace to them? Of course we should. But ladies and gentlemen, then what we do next is we step in, write a check, and, and shield them from the consequences of what they've done. God doesn't do that, nor should we. But because we can, but because we can write the check, because we do have connections, we prevent our Children from experiencing the the same consequences that David had to experience. I'm saying, guys, when it comes comes to this subject of coming back to God, if you have the expectation that your repentance is going to include that all of the consequences are washed away, you're mistaken. And it's not going to look like that. It's not going to look like, ah, it never happened. There will be consequences. Because... Sin always has some surprises down the road in terms of, in terms of consequences. You know, this, our, in the words of our famous resident theologian, Landon Ditto, he says, he says to the junior hires, sin always takes you places that you don't want to go. It does. So I'm trying to clear away that false notion. We're not talking about that, ladies and gentlemen. You can't confuse forgiveness with the consequences of our sin. Now, having said that, let's move to what what I want to spend the rest of our time on, the bulk of our time. And it has to do with this mindset. Uh, A mindset of a man who wants to come back to God. What does that man look like? The man who is gripped with his sin and wants to come back to God, what does he look like? Well, he is portrayed for you, gang, in this Psalm. So let's, let's take a look at, at what the guy looks like. And by the way, this is, this is where we begin to see why David is called a man after God's own heart. Because primarily, what you find is he's not concerned about the, the social or the familial or even the political consequences of his sin. He's not worried about his reputation or his career. The, the thing that controls him, The thing that is most important to him is the reestablishment of his fellowship with God. That's his concern. Uh, You'll never find him mentioning anything else in this whole psalm. Guys, um, look at verse 11 and 12. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and, and uphold me with the willing spirit. Oh, yes, other relationships that I've got, they may be damaged by my my sin. They may be even destroyed. But my relationship to Yahweh has got to be good. Gang, this this whole psalm is aimed at God. And that's what the mindset is of those who want to come back to God. That is, it's a restoration of that relationship that is the primary concern. David never mentions any civil sanctions that he might be facing. He, he doesn't mention the possibility of revenge at the hands of Uriah's family, both of which are possibilities. That is, I may have to go to jail. Uh, Uriah's family may come after me. But none of that concerns him. His primary concern is purely an only vertical. I must get right with the God who made me. Now I want to show you that in three places, but that that's primarily the the the, the, the mindset that I'm trying to describe. But I want to show it to you in the Psalms. In the Psalm. Gang. If we as God's people have blown it. Which, you know, a few of us have. Maybe all of us. Then the thing that characterizes the the man who wants to come back to God is that his concern is not whether I'm going to have to do this or I'm going to have to go there or I'm going to have to pay this or I'm going to be fine or I'm going to lose this. No, 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 no. His concern is vertical. Now, um, <laughs> I, I read someplace long ago where Hugh Hefner, you know who Hugh Hefner is? He's the, the founder of the great playboy uh, empire. And he said, and I'm quoting him, he says, Do you really expect me to believe that some gaseous whale named God keeps records of my acts? Well, I don't know whether you believe that or not. But I can tell you one per- well." I can tell you one person that did. David. And I'll just have to let you figure out who you want to be your spiritual guide. David or Hugh Hefner. As for me and my house, we'll stick with David. Now let me show you three evidences of the the thing that I'm trying to make clear. That the mindset is purely vertical. Let me show it to you in the psalm. First of all, look at verse 2, and I'm going to combine that with verse 7. He says, "Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And do you see that? In both of those verses he's talking about being washed, getting clean, getting clean. Exactly what parts of David do you think he saw as being dirty? His hands? His ankles? His ears? No, guys. David sensed that sin had had done something to him, that was a was an inner uncleanness that had to be had to be cleaned up, and only God could do that. It wasn't his outsides; it was his insides. You know, I had breakfast just recently with a young man who has come to know Christ in the last year and a half, and one of the privileges of my job, I'm telling you. And I have a lot of privileges in my job, but. One of the privileges of my job is that I get to hear these stories. But we went out to breakfast one Saturday morning, and, and this young man has been a Christian about a year and a half. And, and um, he came to... I mean, you can't believe what he was into. You just can't believe what your children are into. I mean, or some of them, let's say. And um, he came to know Christ at, at a, in, a, in his own apartment at night. And he said the next day when he went back to um, the fraternity... House, which was, you know, the center of all of his filth. Or excuse me, all of his sin. I, I just stole my thunder. But he said that the the one thing that struck me when I walked into the into the fraternity house was filth. That was his word. Filth. It's just filth. Purge me with hyssop. Cleanse me and I'll be clean. You know, guys, I'm not a student of Shakespeare, and I don't want to pretend to be one, but um, parts of Shakespeare everybody knows. You know, the the um, Macbeth, after Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had murdered Duncan in, in Act 2. Macbeth performs this soliloquy when he um, when he sees the dagger and I'm going to try to do my best impersonation of of Shakespeare but this is what he says Is this dagger that I see its handle turned toward my hand come let me clutch thee I see thee still but I have thee not art thou foul weapon sensible to feeling as well as to sight? Or are you a dagger of the heart, a false creation proceeding from an overheated mind? At first, Lady Macbeth made fun of him and said that he was a fool. But then, as you know, in Act 5, later on in Act 5, late one night, she can't sleep, and she makes her famous plea when she says, "Out, out, Damn spot!" What was that, ladies and gentlemen? What kind of uncleanness was that? Was it in her hands? It was the same kind of foulness. It was the same kind of filth. It was the same kind of uncleanness that David sensed. Sin leaves a spot that only God can remove, and David knows it. And that's his major concern. He knows that his sin separates him from his God, and he's got to get back to fellowship with that God. Because the mindset of those who come back to God is purely vertical. This is the second place. I want you to see this. It's in verse four, and and it's a real shocker. Verse four, when he says, "Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." Do you hear what he's saying? Against you and you only I have sinned. Well, wait a minute. I thought Uriah got killed. What about Uriah? Didn't you? Didn't you? Um, didn't you sin against Uriah? He says, "Against thee and thee only have I sinned." You know, guys, Guys, verse 4 is going to tell you something about the nature of sin. It tells you this, that before I can ever sin against you, I've got to trample upon the law of God. Before I can ever violate Uriah or Bathsheba, I have to take God's law and discard it. Guys, all I'm simply trying to demonstrate is that you see that uppermost in David's mind is that he's seeking to return. Oh, my sin against my spouse may be a very serious thing. My sin against a friend or my sin against my parents. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is that I've sinned against God. And that's what David is saying in verse 4. And thirdly and finally, because he's still not done, in verse 5 he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In the midst of all this, David senses that corruption is at the very center of his nature. The the problem that he has is bigger than just this one episode with Bathsheba. There's there's no use for him saying something like, "Well, you know, that was bad, but um, I'll never do that again." We, we would all like to think that that our spiritual moral breakdown was an isolated incident, you know, kind of an exception to the rule. And there are psychologists and counselors and preachers doing their best to try and convince their listeners that at the center of our being, we are basically good people. Well, not according to David. He said, I was brought forth. I was born a child of rebellion. You know, guys, I mentioned in the first sermon two weeks ago that that there are all these excuses that people want to make for their sins. And what you find in Psalm 51, the whole tone of this psalm, is David accepting all of the responsibility for his sin. The behavioral sciences, which you know something about, uh, I do too, I know a bit, but the behavioral sciences is they try to give us a way out we are what we are we are told by them uh, because of what happened to us in our past we are we are the products of learning of our environment of our heredity or whatever and we can um, therefore legitimately blame our parents or our our siblings or our society or the establishment But gang, if you go in that direction, you are undermining the entire gospel message. Let me explain that and then I'm done. If you go in that direction to try and shift the blame away from your corrupt heart, that's mentioned in verse 5. You will destroy the only hope that any of us have. Let me explain why I say that. Gang, the, the, the basis of God's forgiveness to us is never, oh, I can hardly be blamed under the circumstances that I face. <laughs> Folks, extenuating circumstances do not constitute a basis for Mercy. David could have said, "Lord, <laughs> all the other kings are doing it." Or I was under some very stressful times. Or if you only knew my childhood. He he doesn't make any of that sort of plea. Because he knows that his only hope is to be found in the character of God. He says in verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He recognizes that it is only God's miraculous grace that can cleanse that defiled nature that he knows he has. Guys, your sins, our sins may be as miserable and as horrific as were David's, or, may, or maybe not. But whatever the case, our hope is to be found in God and God alone. He can pardon and cleanse because of who he is. He is a a righteous God and Savior, says Isaiah. He he, he can, there's a remedy. Not because I deserve another chance. I don't. None of us do. But he can cleanse because of who he is. I just noticed in verses 1 and 2, he uses the personal pronoun me and my some five times because he's trying to take responsibility, complete responsibility for his sin. And guys, I stress that point. I stressed it two weeks ago. I stress it again. Because to the degree that we attempt to excuse ourselves, then to the same degree, we are not trusting in the righteousness of the Savior to cleanse us from our iniquitous heart. What we're saying is, that we deserve some kind of special consideration because of extenuating circumstances. Guys, the only reason that we can be cleansed is because our sins were laid on, on another. Our sins were paid for by a perfect sacrifice. The beauty of the gospel is that God has provided a savior for sin. And if you call your sin something else, if you call it the product of your environment, or if you call it bad parenting, or if you call it bad potty training, or it's just in my genes, then there is no remedy. There's no pill for bad genes. But if you call it what God calls it, then I have good news for you. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And he who plunges beneath that flood loses all his guilty stains. Guys, we have a choice to make when we come to God about our sin. Either we justify ourselves or else we justify God. Did you see what David did in verse 4? So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Either I justify me or I justify him. You can't do both. And if I'm right about my extenuating circumstances, then that means that God is wrong. If I say you would be wrong to condemn me because I cannot really be held responsible for what I did because of yada, yada, then what I'm doing is I'm challenging the righteous judgments of God. Whether I realize that or not, I'm saying I'm right and God, you're wrong. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell and God appears and Adam says, Oh, the woman that you gave to me, she did give me to eat and I did sin. And Some of you may have concluded that he was trying to shift the blame to Eve. No, no. The text says, the woman that you gave. It's your fault, oh God. You gave me that woman. And what you're doing is you're not asking God to forgive you. You're asking him to excuse you. Which is no gospel at all. But to admit and take full responsibility is to acknowledge that God is right. And then the next step is that we go to Christ. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, the only people who go to Christ are the people who are convinced their problem is sin, and that only a Savior can heal. I'm going to tell you a story as I close, and I'm going to use a name, and I think he wouldn't mind. I don't think he would mind me using his name. Uh, I might get sued for this, but I doubt it. The guy's name is Joel Gregory. I don't know that you know Joel, but let me tell you a little bit about him. If you're a Baptist, if you've got some Baptist blood in you, you'll probably recognize the name of Joel Gregory. Joel Gregory was chosen to replace the very much beloved W.A. Criswell at First Baptist Church, Dallas. When Criswell retired, gosh, 15 years ago or so, his replacement was a guy by the name of Joel Gregory. Oh, it's longer than 15 years ago. probably 25 years ago. But anyway, Joel Gregory was the replacement. I've heard Joel Gregory preach probably fifty times. Heard him in person. He is outstanding. He, he operates like there's this little tiny panel of word executioners in the back of his brain, and every word that spits out of his mouth is just perfect. Perfect. He's brilliant. And is a great Handler of the scriptures. Joel Gregory is no longer at First Baptist Church of Dallas. He got in trouble. I, I think I know the details. I'm not even going to tell you the details. It was some kind of sexual dalliance. And of course, he was let go. Last I heard of Joel... He was selling, this is honest truth, he was selling funeral plots. By the way, it's in his book. He tells this in a book that I have in my, my library. He was selling funeral plots. But he was a man who came back to God. And he's not in the ministry I don't, that I don't, I don't know of. It's something recent could have happened. But Joel tells a story. He tells a story about his early childhood days in his education. He said, there are a lot of us who remember an experience from our early grades in school. When the teacher would come into the class and she would say, now boys and girls, I want you to do your best on these achievement tests. Because these are going to go on your permanent record. And Joel said a lot of little first grade minds were absolutely scarred by thinking, And, and it conjured up that there was down deep in the bowels of the board of education, this vault where the records were contained that would follow you all the days of your life. I don't know whether there is that vault. But this much I know. My sin does not have to follow me all the days of my life. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when you plunge into that flood... lose you lose you lose all of those guilty stains that's our hope ladies and gentlemen that's our confidence that's our trust in the great healer whose name is Jesus Our Father, impart to your people the great assurances and hope of a path that exists back to you. A path that is framed in blood that was drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And yet, O oh God, at the same time, remind us, this whole audience that there is only one such path. All other paths lead to destruction. This path leads to restoration in life. Might we see it in all of its burning beauty, even now? We pray, of course. In Jesus' name.